Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome to our program. Uh, GoFundMe experts uh, say Clarence Thomas is being sponsored by billionaires, and that's bribery. We're getting the whole story now. ProPublica has laid this out, the, the latest legal bombshell, this just mind-boggling story of how back in the day, late 1999, early 2000, Clarence Thomas was on some junket someplace with a bunch of Republicans, a resort down in the uh, Virgin Islands, I believe it was. And he flew home with uh, U.S. Congressman Cliff Stearns, Republican from Florida, and said, if you guys don't raise my salary, I'm going to leave the Supreme Court and others may go with me. We don't know who he was talking about, but, you know, that was the threat. So Cliff Stearns writes Thomas a letter saying, as we agreed, it is worth a lot to Americans to have the Constitution properly interpreted. We must have the proper incentives here, too. In other words, okay, we're going to get you some money, Clarence. Don't worry. Don't leave. Don't go off to the corporate world. We need a right-winger like you. And keep in mind, this was in, in late 1999, early 2000. Who was president then? Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton was president all the way up until January of 2001. So through the entire year of 2000, and of course all of 1999, Bill Clinton was president. And Clarence Thomas was saying, if you don't give me money, I'm going to leave the Supreme Court. And that meant that the conservative majority on the court, which was 5-4 at the time, would become a conservative minority. And this is why the billionaires jumped in and started pouring money down Clarence's throat. Oh, you want your kid to go to a very expensive prep school? We'll do that. Oh, you want your mother to own her house and have it repaired and, and fix up the neighborhood? We'll buy a couple other houses down the street and fix them up so that your mother's place looks nice? We'll do that. Oh, you want to go with us on yachts in Indonesia and all around the world on our you know, multi-hundred-foot mega yacht? You want to fly on our private plane? We can do that. No problem, Clarence. Oh, you want a quarter-million-dollar bus? We'll buy that for you. It's incredible. In fact, you know, people are saying it's bribery. I would say it was blackmail or extortion. Clarence Thomas was basically saying, if you don't give me money, I'm going to make a decision that will flip this court to the left. I don't know why nobody is pointing that part of it out. You know, just line it up with the Clinton presidency and suddenly it makes perfect sense. This is a big deal. And it's all about partisan control of the Supreme Court. Meanwhile, speaking of control, the good men of Texas, and some women, do not want women getting abortions. So far, four counties in Texas have passed travel bans saying that if you transport a woman through our county on the way to an abortion, then anybody can sue you for up to $10,000. Lubbock, Cochran, Mitchell, and Goliad, <laughs> should be Gilead, right? Goliad counties in Texas. And now, in Odessa, a population of 117,000, and Little River Academy, a town of 2,200, have also passed similar policies. Amarillo now, with 200,000 residents, the home of Matthew Kaczmarek, by the way, the anti-abortion judge, Amarillo is now considering it. Back in November, State Senator Nate Johnson, a Dallas Democrat, had introduced legislation that would have prohibited cities and counties from putting into place these 
pregnancy travel bans. But, of course, it never even got a hearing, much less a vote, because Republicans control the uh, Texas legislature. Be interesting to see if they still do after next November. But this is what's going on in Texas. Meanwhile, across the nation, Republicans are trying to prevent people from putting abortion legalization ballot measures on the ballot in state after state. They've already lost in Kansas, Kentucky, Michigan, and Ohio. Probably most spectacularly in Ohio, although the Kansas loss was also got a lot of publicity. So in those four states, we have had ballot initiatives go on, and in every single case, the pro-abortion side or abortion rights side won by large numbers. Nobody's pro-abortion, but people are pro-abortion rights. So now, they, now you got some pushback. Students for Life is, uh, for example, is uh, going to persuade people not to give organizers the signatures they need in Arizona, Florida, Nevada, and Missouri. They're out there telling all their people, you know, be alert, look out for signature gatherers, tell people don't sign those damn petitions. Additionally, quote, anti-abortion groups in Arkansas, Florida, Nebraska, and South Dakota are using a similar approach. The Nebraska Catholic Conference, for example, is urging its members to not only refuse to sign, but also to hamper canvassers' efforts to get signatures from others. What do you do, tackle them to the ground? Sit on them? Invite them into your house and have, you know, tea and cookies with them for a half hour and debate abortion? I mean, how do you hamper them? I don't know, but the Catholic Conference in Nebraska thinks they got it figured out. Arkansas's Republican Attorney General, quote, this is according to Politico, quote, recently rejected the name and ballot title of a proposed constitutional amendment to restore abortion rights, saying it was misleading, contradictory, and possibly redundant. So if we can find a technical reason to keep it off the ballot, we'll do that too. Likewise, Florida Voice for the Unborn leader Andrew Shrivel, quote, said his organization has deployed 50 captains across the state to pass out flyers in English and Spanish urging people not to sign these petitions for abortion rights and set up a website where people can report sightings of abortion rights canvassers and alert local pro-life advocates in the area to counteract the pro-aborts, they call them. So, okay, there's a guy collecting signatures down the street. Go take care of him. What are you supposed to do? Shoot him? Like I said, tackle him to the ground? I mean, I'd, what are they proposing? You know, their inquiring minds want to know. Meanwhile, I have a geeky science for you. This is just great news. The Dutch, they're into bicycling. There's 21,747 miles of bicycle paths in the Netherlands. 21,000 miles. I mean, I thought Portland was a big deal because we've got, uh, what is it, three, 400 miles, Sean, of bicycle paths here in Portland. Goes all the way around the city, through the city, all, uh, just all over the place. Never intersect a street or very rarely. But 21,000 miles. And what have they done now? They're putting solar panels on these bike paths. The bikes are not so heavy that they damage the, the solar panels. I mean, they're specially made solar panels. They've got a rough surface on them, so you get traction. They're made with glass, just heavily tempered glass that lets through the light. And they, they are generating millions of watts. Right now, they, they are generating 148 megawatts of power per hour. I believe this is what it is, WP slash M squared. The new paths are 148. The old paths are 160 megawatts a year of renewable energy in its first year, helping to supply the Dutch grid. 160 million watts of power. We could do that here. I mean, we don't have quite the bike pass. We could certainly do that here. Down in Florida, they are trying to outlaw the pride flag from schools, universities, and all state and local government buildings. The way that they're doing this is there's already a prohibition of uh, political mentions. In other words, you can't have a, uh, you know, in a state building, you can't have a DeSantis for president sign, or in a school, you can't have a whatever, Bush for president, whatever it may be, Biden for president. You can't do that because, you know, these are supposed to be politics-free zones. So what they're saying with this legislation, it's been introduced by Republican uh, State Representative David Barrero, this is the second time he's tried to ban the gay pride flag from public areas in Florida. 
and public property. What he's saying is that the gay pride flag is a political viewpoint. I don't get that. I mean, there are gay Republicans. There are gay conservatives. There are gay fascists. There was a gay black guy who got called the N-word and the F-word at this new Turning Point USA, you know, Charlie Kirk's group. He showed up. He's, he's genuinely a gay conservative who wanted to participate, but he was black and he was gay. And they called him these horrible words and drove him out. So if you've got gay conservatives, gay Republicans, gay fascists, gay Democrats, how can you say that the gay pride flag or the pride flag, I, I shouldn't just say gay, you know, the entire queer spectrum, that the pride flag is political? What does that have to do with politics or at least partisan politics? I think, you know, you might be able to build a case that if something's on the ballot, that this is political. But to the best of my knowledge, there's nothing on the ballot about the pride flag in Florida. I don't know. It's just another, it's another attempt to marginalize and ultimately to criminalize homosexuality and bisexuality and trans is their goal. If you're not white, wealthy, and straight, the GOP has no use for you. Billionaires are bankrolling judges' luxury travel. This from levernews.com. Uh, David Sirota's newsletter, Andrew Perez, actually wrote this piece. And it's really worth reading. Share a couple paragraphs from it with you. In 2021 and 2022, two conservative billionaire-funded legal interests sent more than 100 federal judges on 251 trips in cushy locations around the country and overseas. George Mason University and the Federalist Society funded more than 40% of travel-related payments reported by federal judges during those two years, 21 and 22, a staggering number of junkets. The conservative Antonin Scalia Law School paid for federal judges' transportation, meals, or lodging at least 152 times from 21 to 22. The Federalist Society at least 99 occasions. Caroline Coney, president of the Progressive Watchdog Group Accountable U.S., said it's no surprise that Leonard Leo's Federalist Society and the Scalia Law School are now key hubs for conservative judges to score free luxury trips and unusual perks, undermining judicial integrity and contributing to plummeting public trust in our courts. Now, what they're doing on these junkets, by the way, is they're giving these judges economics education. I put that in scare quotes. And the reason why is because a lot of these judges are, are overseeing cases that have to do with business and billionaires that come before them. And so they want the judges to be pre-prejudiced to look at the world from the point of view of the billionaires and the big corporations. The researchers who came up with this review of these judges, this was done by researchers at Columbia University and the Toulouse School of uh, Economics and ETH Zurich, the researchers write, and I quote, economics-trained judges significantly shift legal outcomes in U.S. courts. They use economic analysis in their written opinions, render conservative votes and verdicts, rule against regulation, are somewhat more permissive on antitrust, and mete out harsher criminal sentences. When ideas move from economics into law, there are important policy consequences. They have taken these judges to places like Naples and Destin, Florida, Maui, Hawaii, the mountains of Colorado and Montana, luxury resorts in the United Kingdom and in Italy. They're, you know, this, the fancy resorts, this is uh, from a Georgetown law professor Fredrickson. She said, if you look at their agendas, they work for an hour or two a day and then they have study time in the afternoon where they go and they study, where they could also no doubt be hitting golf balls. It ends up being a very slanted educational program. It's the only one that's going, and it's awful nice to hang out at the beach and think about antitrust law. I remember years ago, I had a friend. His name was George Than. He was a physician in Los Angeles. He's since passed away. This was in the 80s, and George had pitched an idea to me. He was like, uh, you know, I, I, he was always being invited by drug companies 
to go to faraway resorts and you know for a weekend and all they'd have to do is attend like a one-hour presentation on this drug and the drug company would fly them first class to Maui or first class to, to Manila or Bangkok or whatever and put them up in a fancy hotel and take care of all their needs for a couple of days or a week and then you know when they came home they were expected to prescribe that drug like crazy and at the time Louise and I owned a travel agency and George said you know why don't we start a company to offer these seminars to, to doctors, only do real actual seminars rather than just drug company sponsored stuff because they're required to get these continuing education credits. I don't know if judges, we never did it by the way, we just talked about it. I don't know if those judges are required like many lawyers are to have continuing education credits you know, on a year to year basis to maintain their accreditation or their law status or their bar status or whatever, I just don't know. But this is the sort of thing that is happening. And the group is constantly shipping judges all over the country. In 2021-22, the Federalist Society reimbursed judges' travels to Arizona, California, Florida, Illinois, Indiana, Iowa, Kansas, Kentucky, Massachusetts, Michigan, Nevada, New York, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, Texas, Utah, Virginia, Washington State, and Washington, D.C. And Fredrickson said the whole thing is troubling. Um, and yeah, yeah, I would say so. And this is where it gets really interesting. For example, Chief Judge Jeffrey Sutton of the 6th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals, he was a George W. Bush appointee, he listed 42 of these trips just in the year 21 to 22, more than any other federal judge. GMU's Antonin Scalia Law School sent him to Padua, Italy. The Federalist Society sent him to uh, Alabama, Arizona, California, Illinois, Kansas, Michigan, Utah, Virginia, and Washington, D.C., Another judge, Judge Chad Riedler, who was appointed by Trump in 2019, listed 24 reimbursements, 20 of which were provided by GMU and the Federalist Society. So how are these judges uh, ruling? Well, earlier this year, Sutton, this is the guy who took the most reimbursements, 42 just in one year. Earlier this year, Sutton issued an opinion striking down a buffer zone law designed to prevent anti-abortion activists from harassing patients and blocking the sidewalk in front of an abortion clinic in Louisville, Kentucky. So in other words, he, he made an anti-abortion ruling against the abortion clinic and in favor of the protest, the anti-abortion protesters. This fall, Sutton and Thapar, the other one, issued a decision allowing Tennessee and Kentucky to enforce laws banning gender-affirming care for minors. So, you know, it's working. Leonard Leo and his, his uh, uber-Catholic bunch and, you know, on the Supreme Court and now uh, over 100 federal judges being bought off being paid off, being uh, corrupted by these billionaires, by these right-wing billionaires and their nonprofits, all legalized by the Supreme Court itself in 2010 in their Citizens United decision. It's, it's just amazing. Meanwhile, back in 2017, Donald Trump wanted to give himself and his billionaire buddies a massive tax cut, a $2 trillion tax cut, one that over a decade could cost you know, America $10 trillion. And when they went to cut the, in particular, the top corporate tax rate down to 21%, just that one cut would cost one and a half trillion dollars, $1.35 trillion. So before they finished the job of putting together this tax package, they figured, you know, we've got to raise some money someplace. So what they did is they did away with what's called the uh, personal casualty loss deduction. Now, what does this mean? It means that if your house gets hit by a hurricane and destroyed prior to 2017 and your house is wiped out, you could take that as a deduction on your taxes. If you get defrauded, this, is, this happened in this case that was uh, uh, the, the highlight of this article by Michael Harris in the Washington Post. Laris, excuse me, Michael Laris, L-A-R-I-S. It's titled, How Congress Leaned on Crime Victims to Pay for Trump-Era Tax Cuts. And he, he just starts right out. He said, Congressional Republicans had a gaping hole to fill. Some crime victims ended up falling in. To find savings to cover some of the cost of deep tax cuts in 2017, Republican lawmakers scaled back or eliminated many itemized deductions that targeted specific groups of taxpayers, including those that helped crime victims like Florida retirees, Susie and Dennis Gomas. In a succession of scams tied to a pet food operation called Perfectly Raw, the couple was defrauded out of nearly $2 million. 
the person who defrauded them, turns out it was their daughter, is serving a 25-year sentence for this. So they lost two million bucks. So they tried to take a tax, you know, hey, you know, <laughs> under normal circumstances, if you lose all your savings, your life savings, but you get to take a tax deduction. Well, U.S. District Judge Tom Barber in a July decision who was appointed by Donald Trump ruled that astonishingly, the couple has to pay federal income tax on the stolen money. He cited the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act that Trump signed in 2017, which temporarily repealed deductions for losses from storms, fires, earthquakes, and theft. These th things that are called casualty loss deductions. And they were suspended from 2017 through 2025 for average people like you and me to pay for the tax cuts for the billionaires like Donald Trump and, and uh, you know, his buddies on the Supreme, uh, on the, excuse me, on the, in, in the White House and, and uh, well, you know, in his cabinet. I mean, he had Betsy DeVos, he had Wilbur Ross, he had a bunch of billionaires in his cabinet. This one couple that they're talking about in this story, they paid hundreds of thousands of dollars to the IRS in taxes to cover the $2 million that was stolen from them. Now that it's stolen, it was their retirement money. It was presumably like an IRA or something. Now that it's stolen, it's considered distributed, and now they have to pay taxes on it. It was a cash grab, says Leslie Book, a Villanova University law professor. It was in the fine print, outlined in the Republicans' objectives. Basically, let's shift the tax burden here away from the billionaires who, who you know, keep the Republican Party alive and onto the backs of average Americans who got screwed by scam artists. That's literally what they did. And it's going to be this way for the next two years till the end of 2025. Thank you, Republicans. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Thank you, Donald. That's so kind of you to screw America that way. I'm saying sarcastically, obviously. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Univision, you know, the Spanish language network that is uh, viewed and listened to by Spanish-speaking Americans all across the country. Univision has been taken over or merged with a, uh, a large, another large corporation that uh, apparently has good connections to Jared Kushner and Donald Trump. Back in 2020, Donald Trump had referred to Univision as a leftist propaganda machine and a mouthpiece of the Democrat Party. But, you know, then they got bought out. Donald Trump hosted a trio of Univision executives at Mar-a-Lago and did an hour-long Univision interview, which is going, which was very, you know, sir, may I brush your, brush your teeth for you? Can I, can I shine your shoes? Can I kiss your butt, please? It was that kind of an interview, hour-long interview. Jared Kushner was there in the room with the executives and the interviewer who knew which side his bread was buttered on. Democrats had already bought ads to run in Nevada, Arizona, Pennsylvania, and Florida on Univision during that hour-long Trump interview, which is going to play in prime time in the evening. They had already bought ads to essentially rebut it. And there was going to be an interview with a Biden spokesman. They didn't even invite President Biden. Instead, there was going to be Biden's Hispanic media director, Maka Casado, who was going to respond to things that Trump said in the interview. And Univision, after meeting with Donald Trump and Jared Kushner, Univision, and keep in mind, the Democrats had already paid for these ads. Univision said, sorry, we're not going to run your ads. And we're not going to run the interview with, uh, with the Biden guy. 
We're just going to run Trump, you know, with our with our kiss his ass uh, interview. And uh, that's it, because we're now in the bag with the Republicans. This is nuts. The concerns were first raised in November 22nd when Univision took the unusual step of interrupting programming to cover Trump's Mar-a-Lago campaign announcement live. When Biden gave an October 19th primetime address on Israel and Ukraine, the network cut away. Right. And Nicole in Ashland, Oregon. Hey, Nicole, what's on your mind today? I have to say I just love your show. Thank you. Brilliant. I, since um, Bitalik Buterin introduced Ethereum, when he did so, he said that this could also be used for voting and for direct participation because there are records of right. everything and it's right. fairly safe. The whole blockchain technology, and, yeah. And, you know, why, why not use this? I think we could use this for direct democracy, like a tricameral legislative body. I think the American people are so hungry to directly to know that what they want is going to be enacted. Mm-hmm. And we could introduce it in, in smaller local county areas and get people familiar with it. I'm told by people who work in, in voting that they use it for military Right. But they don't mention it because people are afraid of the technologies. Right. But I think that it could bring us, I think it would bring voters the peace of mind. I think we could bring more transparency into government. My concern is that you're not addressing the core of the problem. The reason why Americans are not getting what they want is not because we're not voting enough. It's because the Supreme Court has allowed uh, big corporations and billionaires to buy our legislators. They've, they've legalized bribery. Right. Um, I'm, right. I'm, no, I'm completely with you that, you know, voting technology can be improved and there's a lot of things we can do and blockchain may play a role in it. Um, but the real problem, the reason why people feel like they're not getting out of government what they want is because they're not. And they're not because our government has been bought and paid for. And that is happening because the Supreme Court legalized the process. And that's that's really where I think we should be focusing our attention. Nicole, thank you for the call. It's it, it, very thoughtful. Jake in Elizabeth, Pennsylvania. Hey, Jake, what's on your mind today? I was just curious as to why people aren't, at least the public type people, aren't simply referring to Donald Trump as a bad-tempered three-year-old. I think they're starting to, Jake. Chris Christie's been saying this for a while. Yeah, yeah, it seems to me like they're a little late. Yeah, seven years late. You know, I agree. Seven years late. Yep. But uh, yeah, he's yeah. Uh, anybody that's ever raised kids, they know that attitude. Oh yeah, yeah. He he really is the spoiled brat of our time. I mean, you're absolutely right, Jake. Thanks a lot for that. That great great observation, Sean in Stamford, Connecticut. Hey, Sean, what's on your mind today? I remember in the 1990s where our two of our local TV stations here in New York would run news stories about, like, about health and how crossing the street could be dangerous to your health. And it culminated in one where it goes, brushing your teeth can be dangerous to your health. And this triggered a huge response nationally. Like, what the? Was that? Mm-hmm. And it caused all this mass confusion. Uh-huh. It was, it was, I was like, I stopped watching, paying attention because of that. Because, you know, health is, is so crucial, and yet they're running these paranoid stories every two days or so. Yeah. It was insane. And then I remember um, back in 2005, I was going to take a trip out to Los Angeles with my girlfriend. And a friend of ours did this whole rant about what Los Angeles news would sound like. It was breaking news. So-and-so just woke up. <laughs> we get there, we turn on the news the following morning, we're watching Good Day Los Angeles, and guess what? It was exactly what he did. Oh, really? It was personality-driven. Well, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a town that is, I mean, Los Angeles, an awful lot of the economy of Los Angeles is based in the movie industry and the television industry, the, the drama industry, as it were. So it's not a surprise that that's heavily covered. I think your larger point, though, is to the fact that news isn't talking about news anymore. They're talking about celebrity scandal and gossip. Is that is that the main point? Exactly. There? Yeah. And yeah. then and then as my friend Alyssa Simmons said to me years ago, who's um, from Long Island, he goes, the news is stupid. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, sadly, that's that is what has happened. We've we've seen a real dumbing down of the news. Most news stories are now written with an eighth grader ability to read in mind, maybe eight year old. <laughs> yeah. David in Woodland Hills, California. Hey, David. Thank you, Guru. Um, you know, according to conversations with God, there is no Satan. There is no hell. God is all things. And therefore, all places are heaven. We're in heaven right now, that room in heaven called the relative universe, where good cannot exist without evil, up cannot exist without uh, down. And the only hell is not knowing that. Because if everyone knew that, everyone would treat each other far better. Yeah. That's I, you know, not why I call. I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of Neil Donald Walsh and his books. He he blurbed my uh, my autobiography. It's called The Prophet's Way. He said this is the most important book I've ever read. It's changed my life. And then he wrote a great blurb for Last Hours of Ancient Sunlight too. We used to speak together. We used to travel back in the late '90s, travel around the country and speak together. He's a, he's a good guy. I haven't seen him in a while. <laughs> And and they're wonderful books worth yeah. reading. But the reason I called is because I believe that most people in media are still liberals, but their billionaire overlord owners will not allow them to tell the truth. And this is a an indictment of monopoly and and uh, concentrated wealth. And it's it is one of a number of existential crises democracy all over the world is facing. Kristen Welker could have asked the Republicans on stage, you know, if we simply allowed rich people to pay the same into Social Security as bus drivers, the program would be solvent for the next 75 years. Why aren't you advocating that? And instead, she, you know, said, how much how much do you want to raise the retirement age? <laughs> like bang my head against the wall. It's fear of losing their jobs, and it kind of echoes the existential crises that pollsters face because their old paradigm is dead. Yeah, I don't. I don't think it's so much fear of losing their jobs in that their senior that their management would be unhappy with them. Although I do think it's fear of losing their jobs. Um, I, but the reason why they would lose their jobs is if they're perceived as being biased against Republicans, then Republicans will refuse to do interviews with them and will refuse to go on their shows. And when Republicans black you out like that, uh, you lose your job because you've got to be able to interview Republicans. You've got, you know, if you're in, in the major net, major media and that's that's the club that Republican politicians use against, you know, these White House reporters and these uh, congressional reporters. It's also the club that uh, Republicans in Congress use. And, and, and it, it's quite effective. It works very well for them. So it's a double whammy. Your, really your billionaire boss will, will give you grief and you can't get the guests you need. Right. And you don't get the guests and, and you lose your job. There you go. Bob in San Jose. Hey, Bob, what's up? Real radio stations in the 50s and 60s. And news departments, and and they actually covered local news. And early 80s, yes. Yeah, but there was a parallel thing that was happening, and I, and I think you missed that. And that is that the possibility of replacing a network which used rented telephone wires with a satellite dish uh, not much bigger than a patio umbrella and a, and a one-car garage-sized building next to a tower could eliminate almost all of that staff. And you could, you could literally have the automation in the 90s, have local commercials that were fed by telephone lines into that automation, otherwise have the whole thing remote-controlled and mostly satellite-distributed programming. Yeah, and one of my brothers eliminated. in the 90s got one of those satellite dish antennas for his backyard, and it was amazing. I mean, you could see European television and stuff. Is yeah, that what you're talking yeah, well, about? That's that, what I'm getting that, at, was the, the cost That was before cable, actually, or as cable was just beginning, really. Yeah, but, but the, cost of, the cost of program distribution went way down, mm. and, that, and the paying, paying a high monthly fee to the uh, AT&T or, the, or their counterparts went away. Um, right. And so it was possible, and once the ownership cap was removed, to eliminate almost all of the people. Yeah, so their, the staffing became very close to zero for many of those radio stations. Now look at what happened, and this one will make your hair stand on end. 
There is a town called Minot, North Dakota, and this is a large Air Force base. There was a railroad train track through there, and they had a derailment of tank cars. They cracked open. It looked like fog. There was a cluster of six radio stations run by a, a company I won't name, and totally on automation. There was no one there. Oh, that's right. It was, a, it was a chlorine state. leak, wasn't it? It was some kind of poisonous no, no, gas? It was a, it, no, it was anhydrous ammonia. Ammonia, that's right. Is it looked like fog, and, and it was dangerous, and no one was there, able to tell that's the right. audience to stay in their houses. Yeah, those were clear channel. That was a clear channel pod there. Yeah. No, I, I remember that well. I remember that well, and it really was a kind of a, a bellwether, a warning sign for all of us. Bob, thanks for the call. You're, you're well-informed. Appreciate it. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Flipped, How Georgia Turned Purple and Broke the Monopoly on Republican Power by Greg Bluestein. This is from Chapter 1. It's titled WTF Happened. After President Trump's victory in 2016, George, Democrats in Georgia were angry and ready to channel that fury into political energy. Georgia House Minority Leader Stacey Abrams had spent a lifetime preparing for just this moment. The daughter of United Methodist ministers, Abrams grew up grounded in activism. She remembers boycotting a local Shell gas station as a child to protest the oil giant's ownership ties to apartheid South Africa. As a teenager, she started a spreadsheet that meticulously charted each of her career goals, including a run for president as early as 2028. While a student at Spelman College, she, the famed historically black institution in Atlanta, she led protests after the Rodney King verdict and challenged Atlanta Mayor Mayor Jackson, the trailblazing first African-American man elected to lead a major southern city, to work harder to help poor people of color. At Yale Law School, she worked at a legal clinic while writing the first of what would be a string of romance novels under a pen name. After a stint working for a prestigious Atlanta law firm and as deputy city attorney, Abrams won a statehouse legislative seat and dedicated herself to becoming a political force, not by backslapping her way through the halls of Georgia's gold dome, but by focusing on changing her party's direction from the inside out. But if there was a defining story of her youthful foray into politics, it was the regrettable high school trip to the governor's mansion for a reception for valedictorians. It was one she spoke about to her friends in quiet moments and later on the campaign trail to roaring crowds. Her family's car had broken down before the dinner, and Abrams and her parents had to take a bus to the formal event in Atlanta's most elite neighborhood. While her peers drove up in expensive rides, Abrams and her parents walked the winding driveway to the big black gates surrounding the estate. When they arrived at the guard station, a security guard glanced at Abrams' mom and dad and then back at her. This is a private event, she remembers him saying. You don't belong here. Abrams' incensed parents soon had him regretting his words with a tongue lashing, and they were eventually allowed into the reception. But that moment from 1991 would be seared in her memory. She didn't recall meeting the then Governor Zell Miller that day or celebrating with other elite high school students from across Georgia. What she did remember was that an agent of the state attempted to block her entry to the governor's mansion by insisting that she didn't belong there. 
In early 2017, she had that story in mind as she began putting the finishing touches on a soon-to-be-launched campaign to convince voters that she belonged in Georgia's top office. Over the past three years, she'd founded a voting rights group, the New Georgia Project, whose goal was to engage hundreds of thousands of voters of color disconnected from state politics. She built a national fundraising operation to promote her vision of liberal policies in the South. She helped transform her often warring Democratic colleagues in the Georgia House into a more effective fighting force. And she assembled a team of aides and advisors to help burnish her national profile and not so quietly make senior party officials aware that she was running for governor with or without their support. To some in Georgia's political class, though, Abrams was known as a behind-the-scenes operator, knowledgeable in the nuances of legislation and skilled at picking apart Republican talking points, and not as a fiery orator who could, who could energize the masses. Sure, she had proven that she could impress wealthy donors in closed-door meetings, but many in Georgia were scarcely familiar with Abrams' name, let alone her ability to motivate Democrats. While Georgia Democrats lacked a clear leader after years of demoralizing defeats, Abrams had been one of Trump's most outspoken critics in Georgia. His surprise White House victory gave her the chance she needed to funnel Democratic outrage into results and cement her claim as the leader of the party's resurgence. On a weekday afternoon in January 2017 in downtown Atlanta, not far from the spot where baseball legend Hank Aaron belted his 715th home run, a crowd of 500 or so activists, politicians, and onlookers gathered at a union hall. A former beauty queen angling to run for office wore a sparkling sash. Haggard parents turned campaign leaflets into makeshift coloring books to keep their little ones occupied. Once and future candidates crammed into rows of plastic folding chairs arrayed under fluorescent lights. A hush descended over the room as Abrams delivered her vision of how Democrats could win Georgia. Over the course of about 15 minutes, she spoke of mobilizing liberals by promising expanded health care, access to health care, promoting a more equitable economy, and a push to register and then engage overlooked Georgia voters. Above all, she made the case that Democrats could win back Republican-held territory if they embraced authenticity rather than set aside their priorities to try to win over wavering moderates. She wanted to be both a salve and a spark to angry, hurt, and frustrated Democrats. She promised them there was a tangible path to flipping Georgia, that resistance was not futile. Like her or not, many of Abrams' fellow Democratic lawmakers saw her as a no-nonsense leader capable of navigating the messy mashup of compromise and the shrewd triangulation of power under the gold dome. To her most loyal supporters, she was a prophet of voting rights. The book is Flipped, How Georgia Turned Purple and Broke the Monopoly on Republican Power by Greg Bluestein. Tony in Long Island, New York. Hey, Tony, what's on your mind today? Um, I'm sure you heard about Mehdi Hassan and how uh, MSNBC decided to can his show. Yeah, he was I, probably the last I was very disappointed in that. I was extremely disappointed. You have people like Rachel Maddow, who was built up by Key Doubleman. She gets $31 million a year to show up one day a week. Uh, you, you get Chris Hayes four days a week. He's getting like $15 million. Uh, and if you get the two or the three of those people who would stand up and say, listen, don't fire this guy, they would actually hold on to him or give him or give him uh, Maybe. a nighttime spot. I mean, what he, we don't know is what was really going on in the background. I mean, I, you know, I've been inside that industry. I, in fact, there was a, a moment in time where the head of programming over there at MSNBC had, had brought me and uh, Ed Schultz in for interviews. And basically, yeah, Ed Schultz, they got rid of him, too. Yeah. Well, you know, yeah. But they 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 picked Ed because, you know, uh, it was Phil Griffin, uh, because, you know, basically I, I was like, Phil I Griffin. will not sign a contract that says I don't have editorial control over my own show. And uh, Phil Griffin, that's yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, there there may be a backstory there that you don't know about. Um, it could be that the ratings sucked. I don't know. I doubt it, though. I you know, it's it certainly looks to me like Mehdi Hassan was just a little too edgy for MSNBC. And I, I think that's unfortunate. I, I, I think he I thought he brought a, a, a really important perspective and an absolute brilliant mind to his program. Oh, he was. He put people on the spot. Talk. He actually grilled them. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. He was the BBC has an incredible watch. show called Hard Talk. If you've never watched it, it's really worth going out of your way to watch. And you know, and Mehdi Hassan could do that show. I mean, you know, there's very few people who have the skill set and the intellect to do a show like that. 
And we need something like that in America. Uh, Tony, thank you for the call. Yeah, I, I just don't know what happened there. I have no inside, you know, nobody on the inside at MSNBC is talking to me. Marie in Atlanta, Georgia. Hey, Marie, what's on your mind today? One of the things that I've been concerned about for years is this mechanism where they feed you subliminal messaging through the media, which was mostly TV. Right. They would flash images for, and then turn up the volume on the commercial so your auditory is busy and your, your subconscious picks it in. I thought they outlawed that in the 60s, but no. apparently I'm learning that they haven't. Yeah, Vance Packard wrote his book, up, The Hidden Persuaders, in either the late 60s or very early 70s. And there were congressional hearings about this, and nobody was able to actually prove that it worked. Um, there was, uh, in Packard's book, he cited a study that suggested that flashing a picture of popcorn on a screen in a movie theater drove up popcorn sales. But then, uh, and, and that study made that claim. It, it was true. But there have been three or four studies that tried to replicate that, and nobody's been able to replicate it. And they've largely come to the conclusion that the guy who did that original study was BSing everybody. So, you know, that's why it never got outlawed, because it doesn't work. All right. That answer, because uh, the comments I'm getting, it's all language that they're using. They're using the same words all the time. You know, I Now, that's a form of subliminal code. suggestion, Paul. All right. Is controlling the language. That's absolutely a way of controlling the frame. It's getting crazy out here. It really is. I totally get it. Fights are breaking out, and you think it's a Democrat and a Republican, and it's two Republicans trying to kill each other. Yeah. I I know. It's it's wild times uh, at Ridgemont High here, Paul. Uh, The Republican Party. uh, This is what happens when you've got a political party that really has nothing to offer average people. It, it purely represents the interests of big industry, particularly the fossil fuel industry, and, and billionaires. And, you know, everything else they've got to make up. And so they come up with these, uh, oh, we've got to keep trans kids out of the bathroom, or, oh, we've got, you know, the, the, the black people are, 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 you know, fill in the blank, right? Critical race theory, oh, my God, you know, uh, trying to make white people feel bad. Um, and, you know, they, they are the great replacement theory. You know, rich Jews are paying to put uh, black and Hispanic people in jobs that white people used to have. All of these things are just ways of distracting us from the fact that the Republican Party has two agendas. Promote the interest of big business, particularly the fossil fuel industry, which is the largest, one of the largest donors to the party. And and uh, promote the interest of the billionaire class and, uh, you know, give them more tax breaks and tax cuts. That's all they've got. And so this is what you end up with. Paul, I got to run, but thank you for the call. And thanks for listening to SiriusXM. I, I do appreciate it. Deva in uh, Okemo, Oklahoma. Am I saying it right? I want to remind your listeners, if they really want to understand how the Republican Party got into the media business, they've got to go to YouTube, type in how my dad was brainwashed. Oh, this is Jen Seiko's movie, uh, The Brainwashing of My Dad by Jen Seiko. She's been on our program a number of times. She's great. She wrote a book about it, too. But there's a great movie about it. I mean, the documentary shows that this was a plan. My question to you, those of us involved in progressive media, progressive coalitions through the years, we've known about this for over 30 years. Why haven't we before probably the last five or six years really began attacking it as a group? Right wing media? No, why did all the progressive groups never, they've known about this 30 years ago? This being Fox News and right-wing media. You know, my question is, we've known about it. Those of us involved in media knew it. You know, political action groups, you know, citizens groups that are 
you know, for the progressives, we've known about it. Why did it take us so long to band together to attack it? Because this has been 50 years of planning. It's not dismantled. 2005, Deva, we did it. In 2003, I wrote an op-ed called Talking Back to Talk Radio that was published at CommonDreams.org. And it was about how a progressive radio network could actually make money because half of America is Democratic and, you know, there's no talk radio for the Democratic half of America. At that time, you had Rush Limbaugh and others on the right saying, oh, only conservatives want to listen to talk radio. Liberals don't have an interest in it, which was BS. So anyhow, I wrote that op-ed. It, it stimulated uh, Shelley and Anita Drobny, a couple of venture capitalists in Chicago, to pull together enough money to start a new television net- or a new radio network. It was called, free, uh, called uh, Air America Radio. And uh, Air America, you know, I, I wrote the original business plan for it. And, and I was on Air America. We did this for five, six years. I, I forget how long it was exactly. Um, the problem was that we were the, the business model. We didn't have a lot of money. We, were, we had enough money to rent stations, but we didn't have enough money to buy stations. Now, the billionaires had already bought stations. I, I met with a billionaire who owned 700 radio stations in the office of a United States senator. And he said he would never put a progressive on the air because they want to raise his taxes. So anyhow, we didn't own the stations. We leased 54 stations from Clear Channel. So then Mitt Romney decides he's going to run for president, and he has Bain Capital, his company, buy Clear Channel. And within a year, they had flipped more than half of those stations from, from you know, Air America, progressive political programming, back to sports. And at that point, you know, I mean, that was, that was the end of Air America. We didn't have enough money from advertising. We didn't have enough advertising revenue to keep the network afloat. So we tried it. You know, and, and, and yes, you're absolutely right. We, we did not get the kind of support we should have gotten from the Democratic Party or from progressive investors. David, thank you for the call. Les in Winnemucca, Nevada. Hey, Les, what's on your mind today? I keep hearing a mischaracterization on the news. And all of your guilt, Kevin, I just got to say something. In Helsinki in 2017, Putin came right out and said, I told all my generals to do all they could to help President Trump get elected. That's that's, that's correct. What he said, and he that's an admission right there. He doesn't go out there and, and plan these things. He has his boys do all that stuff. He has this all in line. They have, they've been messing on the Internet ever since the Internet's been there. And they've been screwing with us, us on the Internet, and they're still doing it right now. Yep, I agree. You know? I agree. Right and, on. And thank right. you. Yeah, thank you, Les. Yeah, and we need to be reminded of what Putin said, because he did say that. Uh, not, uh, not exactly in those words, but damn close. Connie in Shady Grove, Oregon. Hey, Connie, what's on your mind today? Hi, my uh, representative is Republican Bench. Uh-huh. And I was watching Channel 5 last night, and he texted them, and uh, he said that they have evidence to uh, impeach the president. Which is a lie. <laughs> so he's, he's, huh? Which is a lie. I know. Everything mm-hmm. they say is a lie. I agree every time you talk with you. Um, that's why I watch you. Well, thank you. <laughs> but I just thought, oh, this is, <laughs> well. So anyway. did the news media there in, in uh, Shady Grove, Oregon, did they, or Cove, Oregon, did they, did they report this as if it was true? That Republicans have no, evidence? No, it was out of Medford. Uh-huh. It was out of Medford. Right. Yeah. Uh, no, they didn't say anything. So they so they didn't they didn't correct him they just they just reported it no they just reported it incredible incredible this is what this is what Republicans rely on is that the media will not point out their lies when they lie because the media yeah. are afraid of losing connections they're they're afraid of of you know if if you have to have guests in order for your radio or television program to work, and that's the case with many of these news operations, if you have to have guests, then those guests have power over you, and that's what's going on. Connie, thank you very much for, for the call. It's one of the reasons why I don't depend on guests on this show. I, you know, I frankly don't care what, you know, what most of these people think of me. I'll, I'm just going to come on the on the program every day and tell my truth. And you know, I, people disagree with me. That's fine, but. I just can't imagine being terrified that if I if I talk back to a Republican, he'll never come on my program again. Oh, my God. You're listening to Tom Hartman. 
Jim in Orchards, Washington. Hey, Jim, what's up? My theory is about how to circumvent our government entirely by having really good polling systems and then putting all these major topics on the referendum so that people can vote on them. And I don't care whether it's abortion, gun control, the border, all of these particular things could be voted on by the public and circumvent people, the minority, Congresses, and Senate. Uh, and uh, that's a big one. And then uh, guns, you should have local armories in all cities so that all automatic weapons and things like that are checked in and checked out. Uh, and uh, the border, there are so many things about the border uh, of creating a, a whole thing for these border people in southwest United States, and I mean using bunker buster bombs and creating lakes and, and you know, making the water potable and uh, all of these things that uh, I've advocated for for 30 years, and, uh, you know, and I just want to toss it out to you. Okay. You, <laughs> there's a lot there. Um, but well, there's a lot more that I could talk about. I, I, but, uh, I'm guessing. I'm guessing you're right. Mm -hmm. uh, Jim, thank you. Uh, you know, uh, some thought-provoking questions or ideas, I guess. Burby in Chicago. Hey, Burby, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. Love your show. First-time caller. Thank you. I just want to say, thank you, that we Americans, we must get outraged and angry to the point that we take to the streets, boycott businesses that are, that are in bed with Republicans. Uh, what we're doing is waiting to see what they're going to do. Then we'll react. We need to do something more than wait to see what they're going to do. They're, we're the ones following the rules of the law. We don't realize that there will be no rules in law or constitution once these people get power again. These, that's right. These people, I mean, Republicans. That's what, that's what they're saying. We, so, Burby, instead yes. of instead of working on boycotts and things that that can be dicey and difficult and and some cases don't even get noticed, um, you know, only a little more than half of Americans who are qualified, who are eligible to vote, even register to vote, and of the people who are registered to vote, only about half of them actually vote. Um, I may I may be slightly exaggerating those numbers, but it's uh, you know basically our decision our our. Our primary elections are typically decided by fewer than 10% of the people, and our national elections are f f decided by, you know, roughly half of the people who are actually eligible. So it seems to me that if you're concerned about all these things, and I share your concern, that the, the single most effective thing you can do right now and between now and November of next year is to help everybody you know make sure that they are registered to vote. And, I mean, you live in Illinois. They're not going to be purging your vote. But if you have friends who live in red states... Um, make sure that every month they are double checking their voter registration because the attorneys general, or excuse me, the secretaries of state in these red states, these Republican secretaries of state are aggressively purging people from the voting rolls. I mean, they, they purged 20 million people off the voting rolls in the two years leading up to the 2020 election. They are aggressively doing that. So that, that's, that's the big work we have, Burby, in my opinion. I I agree. And why I think since they're doing that and it's OK for them to do it, then the, the Democrats need to purge the Republicans <laughs> off yeah. the votes. Well, they're, that, they're not they're not they willing to do, do what's that good for the goose and good for the gander. No, I, I, I totally get what you're saying. And, and I, I'm, I'm feeling that way, frankly, about New York and gerrymandering. Um, and, and, the, exactly. and, you know, but uh, with regard to the purges, I think what we need to do is is get the, the For the People Act passed. And so these absurd decisions by the by just, you know, every single one of them by five or six Republicans on the Supreme Court. None of them have been bipartisan decisions um, to make it harder for Americans to vote, all that kind of stuff so that we can overturn those things. Burby, thanks for the call. Eric in Erie, Pennsylvania. Hey, Eric, what's on your mind today? There was a, I can't remember if it was an investigative reporter or just a smart applicant, but there was secretly gotten video. And if people YouTube and Google search it, they'll find it. These, this group of prospective employees went into like an orientation at a Walmart location. And the management staff there that was intaking them to the application process was touting the many benefits of working at Walmart, like, you get to apply for food stamps and Medicaid and all these things. Right. And I know. then they, pull, they pulled out the county forms, Tom, on camera. Yep. 
No, they've been they've been busted for doing that all over the country repeatedly for yes. for over a decade now that I know of. And that's a direct subsidy. How yep. is that not welfare fraud on the part of Walmart? Bernie has introduced legislation to increase the taxes on these giant corporations to an amount equal to what the benefits that we are providing to their employees cost us. Tom, the middle of America is subsidizing the payroll costs of the wealthiest and largest employers. That's correct. And we're sub we're subsidizing the profits of of major That's like that's correct. And we need to do, we need to do something about it. Eric, I, you know, spot on. Thank you very much. Listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.